flew to Saigon, and uh, my visa wasn't valid, it turned out. I had to spend a nice first night in custody, but that all worked out fine. And met with this fella who uh, got it. And we sat down and planted what would a bike ride look like. And I biked off to Hanoi. Six months later, I came back with 60 people, and we biked tailwinds being important. The other direction from Hanoi down to Saigon, it was the first Americans crossing the north of Vietnam after the war. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with Rick Bauman, a former state legislator and county commissioner. In 1994, Rick organized the first large-scale American bike tour of Vietnam. Inspired by the view from the Markham Bridge at the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption, Rick started the Portland Bridge Pedal in 1996. By 2007, it was the third largest organized bicycle tour in the world. My dad got transferred to California, to San Francisco, in the summer of love. And, uh-huh. and talk about going from northeastern Wisconsin to San Francisco in 1966. That's more than a two-hour time change. Yes, yes. That's <laughs> a couple of decades worth. It was. So I stayed there through college and then moved to Portland in 72, right at the end of college. Oh, nice. Yeah. And you mentioned you were going to college. You were, you were at PSU studying medical research. I was studying Biology, biology and worked up at OHSU doing some medical research. Yes. And you were thinking about becoming a doctor. I was hoping to, but didn't make it. And then all of a sudden you landed in politics? All of a sudden I landed in politics. How did that happen? Well, how did that happen? Our Congressman Blumenauer was my state representative, mm-hmm. and he decided to run for the county commission one year. This would be 78. I had some contacts in local politics, not much. I'd worked on now Governor Jerry Brown's campaign, then Governor Jerry Brown's 1978 presidential campaign here in Oregon, so I knew a few players, Yeah, was just, just went out and knocked on a lot of doors and uh, got elected and, yeah, and served for eight years in Salem and then four years on the county commission. Yeah, county com- uh, yeah eight years, Oregon legislature, county commissioner. In 1986, you ran against Bob Packwood. U.S. Senate. That, I did. That was probably a really interesting race. That was before I moved here. And there was uh, another person that got removed from the ballot. Jim Weaver was a congressman from Eugene, the right. uh, Peter DeFazio seat. <laughs> Jim was an interesting character, to say the least. He was sure that the economy was going to collapse. So he took all his campaign funds and shorted the market. Oh. <laughs> Lost them all. And in August decided to, um, he had won the nomination in the primary. He, yeah. he just withdrew. And so there was a vacancy. I had, at the time, had been in the state legislature and had just the previous year lost a bruising campaign to Vera Katz for the oh. speakership. And so I didn't have a whole lot of reason to stay <laughs> around Salem. <laughs> so I decided to um, jump in and took on Packwood in a hopeless cause. But it was great fun, wonderful. I mean, boy, if you want to understand Oregon, just 
run a 10-week political campaign across the state. Well, and yeah. you didn't lose horribly. As you mentioned, you were really only in it for the last couple of months yeah. before the election, and you garnered about 30%, more than 30% of the vote. I think it was something over 35, but yeah. yeah. No, that's, uh, it was an interesting time. I mean, yeah. the Republicans control the Senate. Packwood, his head of the uh, Senate uh, Finance Committee, Hatfield, was head of expenditures, appropriations. I mean, we had the, the two most critical committees yeah. for Oregon right then. And uh, so, I mean, that's a hurdle to run against that kind of power establishment. He had what then now seems like chunk change, but then seemed like unlimited amounts of money. Yeah. I spent less per vote than he did. That's <laughs> my only claim to fame from that from that campaign. But it was fun, and it was uh, a fascinating way to learn about the state. And yeah, no, I don't regret it a bit. Good. When yeah. you were in the Oregon legislature, what kind of uh, what kind of things fueled you? What were you pushing for? Well, back in um, the late seventies, early eighty, energy was a critical issue. Yeah. A, a Trojan nuclear, nuclear power plant was yeah. being built; uh, had been built and operating in questionable. The whoop system up in Washington was running into, all, you know, building like crazy and running all kinds of financial trouble, and. PG&E wanted to build more nukes here in Oregon. So uh, energy was, was a critical issue at the start. Just because the committee assignments had morphed over the years, I was there more into a human resource focus yeah. and, uh, and funding for human resources, particularly during those very bleak budget times that we had those years. In the 80s. Yeah. So after the Packwood run, you <laughs> decided maybe politics isn't quite for you, mm-hmm. you began working with poor and homeless and organizing protests. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And you had nineteen back to haunt me. Now. Oh no, it's not. I I find this fascinating because for so many years, I've known you as uh, the person behind Bridge Pedal, and yeah. so one of the fun things about this uh, project is learning a lot more about the people that I'm talking to, <laughs> which in turn makes their story, I think, that much more fascinating. Hmm. And so knowing your history uh, brings different things to light. So that's what that's one of the things I really enjoyed about this project. But in 1987, you staged a solid food fast to urge the Oregon legislature to increase funding for social services. And it ended when then-Governor Neil Goldschmidt uh, proposed increased funding. Um, yeah, it was... <laughs> And again, you drive around Portland today and see the number of homeless camps and the tents, and you think, uh, is there a solution? Because we were convinced at that time there was, and you pour a little more money into this. Uh, I remember my last year in the legislature, I was chairing the committee that did human resource funding, and Don Clark, who's a great man, head of Multnomah County at the time, uh, came and said, look, we can solve, for $2 million, we can solve this problem. And we got the money for it, but clearly it didn't solve the problem. We had a, a, an interesting fellow who did great things for homeless advocacy here in town named Michael Stoops, mm-hmm. who formed one of the big homeless shelters in town, Bologna Joe's. It turns out he had some other issues that got in his way as he went on. And poor Michael just died this last year. Yeah. Um, and uh, it kind of threw a monkey wrench into all of that. But yeah, um, it was a time uh, when I thought 
there was a remarkable lack of advocacy for some in some of the human resource areas. Not only that, uh, uh, funding for uh, people with disabilities and mm -hmm. MRDD and others uh, was woefully inadequate. We were working hard to kind of close down some of these big institutional responses to things. Fairview was a place where we just warehoused people down in Salem. Anyway, so it was just kind of part of a quilt in that terms of human resource funding and uh, support and mm -hmm. making it a, uh, a critical part of any equation, not just new prisons and economic development. There had to be more than that. Right. Did you enjoy your time in Salem and uh, Multnomah County Commissioner? Yeah, it was it was a it was a fascinating look into politics, and I, I, I eventually lost an election in '92. And every morning I wake up and thank every voter who voted against me. It was <laughs> it was uh, that was plenty of time to be involved. Yeah, uh, it learned an awful lot. It's a great way to be a dilettante in terms of you get to just drop into places around the state and programs around the state and and delve into issues that otherwise. You'd have no, no standing or no right. no reason to get involved with. So I learned an awful lot, and uh, and very very glad I had did it, and very glad it was over <laughs> when it was over. It ended at the right time. Well, yeah. that's good. Uh, you know, sh shortly after that, you started getting involved in long distance bike rides, yeah. and you rode from Marinette, Wisconsin. I'm guessing in northern Wisconsin to Portland. You did got a kind of understand the tailwinds you right you go from portland to marinette you don't go the other way around you uh, go that true, way you true. start here my my husband keeps talking about wanting to bike ride the whole way to wisconsin i'm like no oh, no even with the tailwinds it doesn't sound good but you did a number of these rides uh throughout the country uh did you end up going all around the country uh, not like if you not. piece it together, yeah, I just, for a number of summers, that's what I take a couple of weeks and do yeah. a long ride. And if you piece it together, I went from Key West, Florida to Fairbanks, Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Bicycling is, uh, though Montana is awfully long, it's still, <laughs> a, 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 you see, you know, you get to move at a decent distance, you know, 80, yeah. 90, 100 miles a day. So you're not like walking where you're just places forever. But uh, you you're exposed and you're interacting with people all the time. And uh, I think it's just a remarkable way to travel. Yeah, we yeah. have taken the boys, um, years ago we had a camper and we took the boys and we rode our bikes, uh, camped and rode our bikes through a number of national parks. Mm -hmm. And it was just a beautiful way to slow down through these national parks mm -hmm. and see things that we wouldn't, had, wouldn't have seen had we been driving through. So I can only imagine on a much bigger scale yeah. what that was like. Where I think we'll be going next on this, but the, the windows in the car or a bus are, are a real barrier. Right. I mean, it, they're, they're, you can see through them, but they block yeah. a lot. And when you're on the bike, you can look all around and exactly. you've got nothing in your yeah. way. Yeah. Why did you start doing that? What, what, what was it that, you know, you woke up one morning when, and said? When my daughters were growing up, we had a tradition of always uh, going to my parents' house in northern Wisconsin yeah. for Christmas. And it was known as the Santa Claus Express. <laughs> and uh, uh, so got to know that route pretty well, driving it yes. every year or so. And, and, and just I loved it. And was and as I got into long-distance biking, it sort of just became the obsession. And then uh, what came next? The, it was the 50th anniversary of the Alcan Highway. And I said, oh, that'd be interesting. And... Uh, my stepson and I did that, 
and about halfway up someplace in the Yukon, there was, we, we stopped at this place, and this barn had a map printed on it of North America showing where we are. And I said, oh, look, there's Key West. There's her. <laughs> I've done that. I've done that. If I do this part and that part, then I've done the whole thing. And oh, so it all just one led to the other. Yeah. And yeah. then that, speaking of one thing leading to another, then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but you know what I mean, putting together these international bike tours. Yeah. Well, some point in there, I was... Uh, President George H.W. Bush, mm -hmm. Bush the first, uh, lifted the travel embargo for Vietnam. Right. And that was, I want to say, 60, 93 probably. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, though there was still no banking relationships or things, you got to get visas through Mexico, all kinds of barriers, but it was still possible for Americans to travel. I left the county commission in January 93. I said, well, before I decide what I do next, I want to go for bike ride. And for all of us growing up in the 60s and 70s, Vietnam, obviously, even though I did not serve, I was lucky enough in the draft lottery to be, have a very, very high number. The yeah. um, Must have held that mystique. It's, it did. I mean, it, yeah. was a, it, was, it was a fundamental part of those formative years. I was reading a story in the Oregonian about the economy, uh, developments in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And the last paragraph said, after finishing this interview, this guy hopped on his bike and biked off to Hanoi or something. Oh. And I said, there's my next ride. There you go. And so I made contacts at that time. I mean, the economy in Vietnam was still tightly controlled. All the travel was through, it's called Vietnam tourism, which is kind of in tourist in Russia. It was the, you had to do it through them and made the contact and flew to Saigon. Had to, my visa wasn't valid, it turned out. I had to spend a nice first night in custody, but that all worked oh. out fine. Oh, and met with this fella who uh, got it. And we sat down and planted what would a bike ride look like. Yeah. And biked, I biked off to Hanoi. Six months later, I came back with 60 people and we yeah. biked tailwinds being important, right. Right. the other direction from Hanoi down to Saigon, it was the first Americans crossing the north of Vietnam after the war. Right. And it was just a marvelous adventure and just keeps spinning things in there. And that fellow who helped me is, is still a good friend and helps me do bike tours in Vietnam oh. still today. That's neat. So you've been yeah. back a few more times. Oh, I've probably had 25 groups to wow. Vietnam over the years. Yeah. Wow. Well, you've also done bike tours in the Middle East and South Africa and Cuba as well. Well, we've had... This initial group of 60 who, you know, when your expectations are survival it, right. and you have a good time, it, you've got all these people who will follow you anywhere. And sort of, I've never done bike tours in southern France or Italy right. or places no where place. there's Easy. 27 co companies already <laughs> doing them. I've sort of looked for places that were a little more on the edge and mm -hmm. did several in South Africa right after apartheid was listed. Uh, I did a few in Myanmar not doing them anymore because of the situation there, right. but where things were a little better it, it, there. Uh, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Cuba yeah. did once, Morocco. And one great one, I think my favorite was back in the Clinton years when the Camp David Accords were being negotiated and all this sort of stuff and things were pretty calm over there. Did a great ride in 2000 from uh, from Cairo to Jerusalem through the Sinai and Jordan and all around, but have tried to repeat that one, but it just never, you got to plan these things, you know, like nine months out and you can I never imagine. predict the, the politics and the stability that far away. That's true. I hadn't yeah. thought of that part. Are there any places that you would still like to do a bike tour in? 
on your yeah, uh, uh, there's still parts. I mean, we did a couple I'd like to repeat. Uh, the bike ride from Lhasa, Tibet to Kathmandu, Nepal is unbelievable, yeah. and uh, I, I want to do that one at least once more. I mean, it's I mean, you're at elevations up to seventeen thousand feet, so it's <laughs> it's your lungs that give out, not your legs, which yeah, would right. normally go for me when I'm biking. But uh, I'd love to do that one again, and. Uh, and we've developed a, a, a fabulous new ride between Myanmar, Tibet, and Laos, going actually immediately adjacent to where the cave was, where these kids were last found. Yeah. Were finally got out last week, yeah. uh, and then everything went crazy with uh, uh, with the politics in Myanmar. So we canceled any plans to do that trip. But hopefully, their behavior will improve and things will get better, and we can do that at some point yeah. in the future. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Rick Bauman in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Rick Bauman, a former state legislator and county commissioner. In 1994, Rick organized the first large-scale American bike tour of Vietnam. Inspired by the view from the Markham Bridge of the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption, Rick started the Portland Bridge Pedal in 1996. By 2007, it was the third largest organized bicycle tour in the world. Well, in the meantime, you've got uh, Providence Bridge Pedal. 23rd year, is that right? It is. It's 23rd year. The and, you know, we've had one sponsor for all 23 years. Which is pretty amazing. And that is Kink. You, wow. are the, you, are, you were there the first year, and you've been with us every step of the way. It's one of those activities, one of those Portland things that is just so much of who we are. I mean, we, I like, I mean, my family, we're bikers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, my husband, actually my husband and son, this weekend are doing the weekend part of Cycle Oregon. Mm-hmm. And this will be a good bonding experience good. for them. Uh, and a hot bonding experience, too. hot bonding experience, but they'll hang out uh, on the U of O campus and have fun, I hope, uh, in between sweating. But, yeah, this is just outdoor adventures are kink, and uh, certainly this is such a community event. How do you not embrace it? And so it's been fun being a part of it. And I've always ended up having to work on Sundays. But I remember even in the beginning, particularly when, be, you know, seeing these cyclists on top of the Fremont Bridge, I would watch as I was on the air Sunday mornings, uh, KGW would have these cameras. And just the wonder of these faces looking out. And when my husband and sons would do it, you know, he would take pictures of them on the top of the Markham Bridge, the top of the Fremont Bridge. And, you know, you can see everybody in the background kind of looking out and just loving it. Because when else can you really sit and enjoy the view from the Fremont Bridge? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not when you're driving by in your car. But what was the inspiration behind this idea? Um, in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. Portland was just starting to get its uh, reputation as a, as a biking mecca. Yeah. Uh, Though they changed names, the Bicycle Transportation Alliance yeah. was just formed, but Clark's mayor, mayoralship was had the bike image, is. and uh, 
lo- a lot of things going on. Cycle Oregon was a couple years old. You know, they were featuring the state. There's this big ride, STP, Seattle yes. to Portland, which was, you know, had already formed. And I was thinking, God, there's all these great rides and things happening, but there's nothing that just celebrates Portland. And uh, it harked back to uh, about 15 years earlier when Mount St. Helens erupted, mm-hmm. and uh, as it did many times that summer, and thankfully some days it was clear when it did. <laughs> I remember driving across the Markham Bridge, the upper deck of the Markham Bridge, and seeing those you know, 20,000 foot high puva soak, and almost drove into the river. Or something. And I, the thought just struck me at that time, boy, we should be able to stop up here and enjoy this view. <laughs> And uh, when I came, there were two other cities that already had developed this class of biking event called the Community Bike Ride uh, in uh, Montreal and New York. So I went and visited them, saw what they did. And just the idea, then the trick was, how do you make this work for Portland? And when you stand back and look, it was clearly the bridges are the thing that link the community together. And and that had to be, that was the key, is is having the bridges. yeah. Yeah. The, I, I have to imagine, especially in the beginning, coordinating and figuring out the right route mm. to hit all the bridges was both fun and also challenging. But what were some of the bigger challenges, you know, the first couple of <laughs> I, years of this? I still have a sheet of paper at home. It was in the back of a big, you know, eight and a half by 11 envelope with all the bridges on, with all kinds of scribbles. Exactly. How, how do you do it? What do you do? Do you? Yeah. Um, the biggest challenge was just getting the permits at that time more, but now still some of the bridges are controlled by Multnomah County. All the streets of the city of Portland and the federal highways, the state highways are ODOT and the federal highways, the Interstate 5 and and 405 are controlled also by ODOT for these sort of things. And I had just enough political contacts left so I could at least get the right people in the room to start talking right. about this. And we started, what would it be? What would it be? And how would you do this? And how would you do that? And, oh, boy, does anybody ever close a, you know, a, an interstate highway to do something like this? Well, yeah, the New York Marathon does. And there's a bike ride in Michigan that closes the Mackinac Bridge, which is an interstate highway. And there's one in Houston. So, okay, well, they can't use that <laughs> as an excuse. And went on over a year of just trying to figure out how this would, would play out. Yeah. And uh, we set the date. It was going to be May of 1996. In March, ODOT came into one of these meetings and said, sorry, we found an administrative rule that says the only reason you can close in Oregon, the only reason you can close a highway is for uh, construction, weather, or an accident. And you don't meet the criteria. And I thought we were dead. But this representative from the city and the county said, Sorry, ODOT, you can't negotiate in good faith for over a year with these people and pull the plug two months before the oh. event. You've got to let them have this one year. And uh, and so they passed an emergency rule that said, for one time, we'll allow this. It was a very rainy May mm-hmm. that year, but that one day came clear. We had about 7,500 uh, registrants and over half of them registered that morning. We had no idea who's gonna, how many were going to show up and how it played. It turned out to be great fun. I mean, it was chaos. We I mean, right. look back and think what we knew about controlling an event like this at that time it was just, you know, it was just we were lucky. But it, it all worked out fine. And at the finish line, we set up tables with postcards because you didn't have internet and anything right. back then to send notes and gave out the phone number for the what was the complaint line because it's the only public line they had at ODOT and they were inundated with cards and calls the next few days and have been an absolute 
spectacular partner ever since. Oh, uh, they passed cool. a permanent rule that allows closure of state highways for for events in, under certain circumstances. They have they have not blinked over the <laughs> over the ensuing two decades. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I and I didn't realize that the first one was in May. When did it switch to August? That year. That summer, when we were reviewing it with the yeah. city and all the permits people, they said, "Okay, we can we can make this work, but we can't have it right next to the Rose Festival. It's too hard. Right. It's too big an event. Requires too many police officers, things like that, right. to uh, to make that happen." And so, the, the rules at that time were you could only have two major street events a month, and there happened to be an opening in August. Yeah. And so Perfect. we've been on the second Sunday of August ever since. And the weather. Has been pretty good last until year. Last year, we had, I've always said if up until last year that if you're planning a wedding, go for the second Sunday of August because it never rains. But, you know, we had about an 80-day drought last summer. And I by, know. In the middle of it, we had four hours of rain. And I, it was Sunday morning, the second Sunday in August. I couldn't believe it. it uh, I had totally forgotten about it. And then last night when I was, you know, looking through the event and I was looking at the Facebook page and I was like, that's right, it rained. Yeah. But rain in August, uh, I don't think that really bothers Portlanders because it's mm-hmm. such a treat after weeks and but weeks when you have, dry. <laughs> when you have 1,200 feet of carpet on the Hawthorne Bridge, that's it true. creates some problem. <laughs> and now throwing that away was I forgot about both the carpet, <laughs> a, a bit of a heartbreak. That's but, true. Uh, anyway. Well, by 2007, it became the third largest community ride in the world. That yep. is pretty amazing. Yeah. And um, uh, it's, been, it's been a fun ride. It's, yeah. It's always challenging, I and mean, we have never been able to do the same route two years in a row because of changing rules, construction, yeah. all kinds of different things. Every so every year, you're you're making adjustments. Do you like that? Yeah, I think I think I do. I mean, it's a fun challenge. I mean, these people are, are pros. I mean, right. the police, the 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 ODOT people, the the city people, and we sit down with this huge map and we say, okay, we got this. How are we going to get around that without? goofing up traffic too badly and you know if you close this ramp what does it do and and it's it's a it's a fun jigsaw puzzle to try to put together yeah it and, would seem that way especially yeah. after you know a couple of decades yeah it can't you know you you've got sort of the groove and it can't be yeah. too difficult to make those adjustments no no it, it's, it's funny when we so we have this big permit meeting about two months out each year with all the players around the big table and they used to take hours, and now it's about a half hour. Yeah, okay, we had this problem this year. How are we going to fix that? Or this has changed. Perfect. Okay, everybody knows what they're doing, and away yeah. we go. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, last year, uh, in addition to the rain, three of the bridges were excluded, uh, St. John's, Broadway, and Burnside, because there weren't enough police officers available. Was was it a rule change for special events, or was it because they were understaffed? They couldn't, uh, couldn't uh, have that. Of the year previous, uh, the police announced in the, in the fall saying, we're just too f- understaffed. Yeah. When, when police officers come in, uh, back up a step, when you're doing a, an event like this, anytime you're blocking a street, if you're just blocking and put a bar- barricade up, a volunteer there will work and they'll yeah. just say, hey, you got to go down to Burnside to cross, right. you can't cross here, right? Uh, if there's any kind of interaction, a train track where you might have train crossing, yeah. max tracks crossing, uh, you're bumping traffic through, that has to be a police officer. Right. Volunteers can't direct traffic. They can yeah. just stop traffic. Bridge pedal traditionally needs about 75 to 80 officers. Mm-hmm. It's not a financial issue. We pay for those officers. Yeah. And uh, the Portland Marathon, which had a much rougher time on this transition than we did, uh, they take about 85 police officers. Right. Uh, the other big event, the Shamrock Run, right. take, would take about 60. Uh, and they said, 
because of the limited number of offices, they're understaffed by a couple hundred officers. Yeah. For the next three years, uh, we have a policy that no event can use require the the design of the event cannot require more than 33 officers okay okay challenges were different for our different events of running event they still got to figure out how to the marathon you still got to figure out how to get 26 miles in right right well with bridge pedal providence bridge pedal we don't the the mileage isn't a critical thing it's bridges and so we had no alternative but to give up some of the bridges and uh we just looked at the areas like trying to get the bikers up by portland state took a bunch of offices and through the Pearl District because of all the track crossings right. and everything. That took a bunch. So I said, okay, how do we eliminate that? How do we eliminate this? And then came up with a six-bridge route and then said, oh, but if we use the trails, we could add the Selwood back in because oh, nice. and yeah. we were able to do that. So that's so we lost three bridges and yeah. a bunch of mileage. And it worked fine. And then this year, the Springwater tra- Corridor Trail all the way down the Selwood Bridge is totally under reconstruction. Right. So we couldn't do the Selwood yeah. Bridge without going back on the street, which would require 10 more officers, which would put us over the limit. Yeah. And uh, so we, for, so this year we have just the six, da- six of the downtown bridges. Yeah. We're focusing much more on, hey, it's family ride, fun stuff. It's No, sorry, it's not for the, you folks who like to m- bike 40 miles before breakfast. But <laughs> uh, we'll be back to that hopefully right. in two years for our 25th anniversary. Exactly. And the Tillicum Cross. I would imagine also takes uh, quite a bit of staffing because of the mm. max line there and such. They don't allow it. Oh, they haven't allowed uh, it. In they the did the, the first year, right? We were the opening act, but yes. the bridge hadn't opened yet. Oh, there weren't trains right. on it and uh, or, or buses on it. So we had the whole bridge. We could build ramps. We could cover tracks. And that was in August. And we, that was yeah, our biggest year September. ever. We had a huge crowd that year. It opened in September, and then Sunday Parkways used it later that month, and they realized, based upon that, you can't run an event and yeah. run trains at the same time. That makes so sense. we have been, it's it's been off the table except for that one year. Right. Yeah. Well, isn't it you guys were able to get on that yeah, one year before it, was. it opened? it was. great. Because I remember that was a big deal. It was all the bridges. Yeah, yep. We yeah. had all 11 that year. Oh, yeah, that would have been a good, I think, I think my husband was on that one. Yeah. 2008, you mentioned uh, just a second ago about the family rides and stuff. You started offering these different ride options mm-hmm. for folks. Yeah. Because doing even six bridges is hard. Yeah. For many of us who are bike commuters that we only ride, you know, 10 miles in a day. When we're trying to figure out, realizing our numbers would be down for these couple of years with, yeah. you know, the long distance riders, we can't accommodate them very well in these couple of years. We've been looking for ways to... Find people like you who, you know, you say, well, it's only 13 miles. Well, for a lot of people, 13 miles is a substantial bike ride. Yeah. And so we're just announcing, uh, just initiating a new program we're calling the Six Bridge Challenge. Yeah. And it's mainly to get younger riders, 12 and younger. So <laughs> if you can do this, it's yeah. 13 miles, six bridges, with some pretty good climbs up to a couple of those bridges. We call it the Six Bridge Challenge, and they're going to be a special T-shirt they'll get at the end as okay. their reward. And uh, look really hard to use these couple of years to build the newer people of town, the people who haven't done bridge pedal, get them excited about the event. And then hopefully in a couple of years, they said, well, I'm going to try for eight bridges or I'm going to try for 10 bridges as yeah. they become stronger cyclists. Yeah, exactly. And we get the bridges back. <laughs> the You mentioned volunteers uh, a little earlier. I would imagine it takes quite a few volunteers. I saw one number that was 300, but that was like from 10 years ago. How many volunteers do you use for this? It takes just those positions we talked about on the street. If you're doing all 10 bridges, it takes about 280 just on the street. 
And the trick of them, they all have to be there in, at the same time because the city doesn't let you start the event until they're all in position. And uh, the the newer downtown route is much simpler. We only use about 80 or 85 of those. In addition, we have another about 150 volunteers doing registration and rest stops and pumping up tires for people and helping at the finish line and that sort of thing. So in the full event, it's close to 500 volunteers. Uh, It's about 300 now with a shorter event. Yeah. Do you ride it each year or where are you positioned during the ride? I have never ridden it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking forward to my first time riding it, hopefully in a couple of years. Oh, good. Um, The theory is everybody, every job is assigned and then I just deal with problems. So I'm on the radio with the police and with traffic control. Uh, and buzzing around and mm-hmm. uh, wherever there's an issue, injury, you know, volunteer who's not well, right. uh, certain traffic cones didn't get put in the right configuration. I'm buzzing around dealing with that, which actually gives me a very jaundiced view of the event the <laughs> night because all I'm dealing with are problems, right? right? And I've got to go to the finish line and see the smiling faces and see the people coming in and say, okay, for 99.5% of the people, it worked just fine. Yeah. It was just the people I was dealing with were the people who were having trouble. Yeah. That, yeah, definitely hit the finish line at the end and see everyone smiling. That would, that's a good way to end it on your end. You mentioned 25th anniversary coming up in a couple of years. Do you have anything else up your sleeve for that that you want to share? Well, I just hope is assuming yeah. this, I mean, the city's been hiring a lot of new police officers. Right. They're being trained now and they're coming through. Uh, you know, they do this as overtime and yeah. the police have to have enough officers available for overtime work if an emergency comes up, mm-hmm. right? And if we've drained all that overtime hour for, for an event, that's their argument that they don't have a res- enough reserve. But if they can get these extra couple hundred officers back in, we get, our, uh, we get all 10 bridges back. That's going to be a big year because normally our, you know, we say we need 500 volunteers. Most of those are not true volunteers in the sense of calling and saying, hey, I want to help. Yeah. It's we're dealing with this uh, band parents group or this high school music program or this service club and we're saying okay you're going to provide 20 volunteers and you're going to manage this section of the course mm-hmm. and then we make a contribution to their program in exchange for them taking that responsibility oh, nice. now <laughs> we need we're going to have to retrain a whole bunch of people <laughs> and get a whole bunch of new people in when we go back to 10 bridges but that'll be a, a fun challenge I was going to say I yeah. don't think you're so not- right now until we get the actual confirmation from the city that we get the bridges back in uh, in 2020 that will that'll be plenty for our 25th anniversary yeah looking back over the last 22 years what's been your favorite part or favorite parts you you mentioned earlier the view from the um, uh, the fremont bridge my favorite moment is always when we're down by the start line down by salmon street spring on Mm -hmm. nato parkway and looking up at the markham bridge and when all of a sudden you see the the outline of the first bikers going across yeah. the top. I think that's yes, it. That is and, cool. uh, you know, that's, it's funny. It's such an ugly bridge, but it's gives such great views of the city. Yeah. And it's, uh, that's one of my favorite parts. A couple of times I've been able to be up there during the event. Okay. I really adore. Yeah. So this year, 23rd year, mm-hmm. uh, August 12th. Yep. And you look pretty relaxed. I am. Good. <laughs> We're Good. still a month to go. Yeah. And uh, it's one of those event planning things. The, the goal is to get everything done a week out yep. so that whatever 
catastrophe happens that last week, you have the time and capacity to deal with it. But uh, everything is looking good. Our numbers are looking encouraging for this year. And the weather report so far looks pretty good. <laughs> you know, I won't believe that until we get a little closer. Yeah. And uh, no, it's uh, these are very, very fun, exciting time, the run-up to, to Providence Bridge Battle. Awesome. Well, look forward to watching folks enjoying the view again yeah. this this year while I'm I'm on the air. But okay. thank you for coming in, and and uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed for the 25th anniversary and have all the bridges. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Rick Bauman. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.